Now, Monday, April 5th, marked day six of the trial of Derek Chavon, the white police officer who is being charged with the murder of 46-year-old George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota in May of 2020 is when the murder took place. On Monday, the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department testified that Siobhan had absolutely violated department policies when he knelt on George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Uh, the police chief added that Siobhan had failed to follow policies on de-escalation, use of force, and the duty to render aid to people who need it. Also on Monday, Dr. Branford uh, Lagenfield, who tried to save George Floyd's life for 30 minutes before pronouncing him dead, testified that he believed uh, Mr. Floyd had likely died of a lack of oxygen. Dr. Lagenfeld said that George Floyd's heart was not beating by the time he arrived at the hospital. Also, Siobhan's former training director said he should have been taught to offer medical aid. On Tuesday, April 6th, day seven of Siobhan's trial, witnesses summoned by the prosecution offered a closer look at police policies on the use of force. Let us go to a clip now from CNBC on the latest on the trial. At the heart of the Derek Chauvin case, the whole trial, did he use excessive force with his knee on George Floyd's neck, or was it appropriate under the circumstances? That's the case. The Minneapolis police instructor who trained Chauvin on chokeholds and use of force took the stand at the now-fired officer's murder trial today. Prosecutors showed an image of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, and the use of force trainer testified that it was not an authorized technique and that they do not teach it to officers. Would it be appropriate and within training to hold a subject in that prone, restrained position with a knee on the neck and a knee on the back for an extended period of time after the subject has stopped offering any resistance? No, sir. Or has uh, lost their pulse? No, sir. The prosecutors also fought in their first outside expert witness, or brought him in, a sergeant with the Los Angeles Police Department who specializes in use of force. He said Chauvin's actions were excessive, especially considering George Floyd was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. NBC's Gabe Gutierrez live outside the courthouse for us tonight. Gabe? Uh, hey there, Chef. From a rainy Minneapolis, and you're right, the prosecution had called officer after officer from the Minneapolis Police Department, but this time, late today, brought in an outside expert from the LAPD who said what Derek Chauvin did was excessive. Mr. Floyd was accused of uh, having a counterfeit $20 bill. And how does the, uh, that particular offense or the severity of the offense relate to the appropriateness of the force to be used against him? Oh, uh, typically, uh, in a normal situation where you're dealing with someone that's a counterfeiter or someone who is uh, using a counterfeit bill, uh, typically you wouldn't even expect to use any type of force. Derek Chauvin's defense team continued to insist that an angry crowd of bystanders distracted the officers and that Floyd died due to his drug use and underlying medical conditions. But today, Chauvin's attorney was more aggressive during cross-examination, and he brought up a picture 
a training picture of an officer placing his knee on the neck and shoulders of a suspect. This is a specific kind of photograph that demonstrates the placement of a knee as it applies to prone handcuffing, correct? Correct. And ultimately, if that person were to be handcuffed and circumstances dictated, the officer would be permitted to continue to hold his knee in that same position. Agreed? Uh, I would say uh, yes. Uh, however, we've cautioned officers that be mindful of the neck area. Today's testimony was more technical than some of the emotional testimony we saw last week. According to a pool reporter inside the courtroom, at least one of the jurors appeared to be sleeping at one point, several others yawning. According to the transcript of body camera video from the more than nine minutes that Siobhan knelt on George Floyd's neck, an officer at the scene said, quote, I'm concerned about excited delirium or whatever. Uh, excited delirium is characterized by agitation, aggression, acute distress, and sudden death, often in pre-hospital care settings. Now, this argument, uh, for some reason, has not been validated uh, medically, but it seems to be one that is used quite a bit in uh, on when it comes to the death of black people under uh, police custody. Meanwhile, Eric J. Nelson, Siobhan's defense attorney, attempted to back up his argument that the crowd of people on the sidewalk are really to blame uh, during uh, George Floyd's takedown, that they made it harder for Siobhan to, for some reason, provide medical aid or to move his knee. This is very strange considering people were pleading with Siobhan to remove his knee and to offer George Floyd some assistance. And um, although the first week of the trial featured emotional testimony from bystanders, Tuesday's trial date kicked off the debate over whether Siobhan did indeed violate uh, police policy. Now, there are some of the prosecution witnesses um, who some are claiming bolster Siobhan's defense. For example, Nicole McKenzie, the medical support coordinator for the Minneapolis Police Department, agreed with Nelson's claim that the crowd of witnesses recording video and speaking to the police made it, quote unquote, difficult for Siobhan to provide medical aid during the arrest. And Lieutenant Johnny Mercil, a use of force instructor with the Minneapolis Police Department, testified that the neck restraint Siobhan use on Floyd was not authorized because George Floyd was already handcuffed and under control. Siobhan's defense tried to make the case that he needed to use that amount of force because George Floyd was allegedly being aggressive. Okay, you're being aggressive, you're on the ground, um, you can't breathe, you've passed out. Anyhow, uh, meanwhile, while examining a photo of Siobhan pinning George Floyd to the ground, Lieutenant Marcel told prosecutors that Siobhan's position was not consistent with the Minneapolis Police Department's training on the use of force, and that furthermore, Lieutenant Marcel pointed out that officers are trained to use the lowest level of force possible when controlling uh, someone. 
I would now like to welcome our guests to discuss all of this and put it in a broader context for us as well. Uh, Carissa Lewis is the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives, which is a coalition of more than 50 groups representing the interests of black communities across the United States. Carissa, welcome. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Uh, Okay, so Carissa, first off, uh, your response to this story of the bystanders being blamed basically for George Floyd's death and also this business about excited delirium, that excited delirium argument. Carissa. You know, I, I, I think this trial is encapsulating um, some of the larger problems with what folks call the criminal justice system um, in that we all watch a man be murdered on, on, on television, on, on video, and, and yet the, the defense is putting forward, you know, that the, the crowd was um, unruly and distracting, and I think this just calls into question the role, you know, the larger role of policing that we have been trying to really bring folks uh, closer to examination around. Um, because, you know, Derek Chauvin's hand was in his pocket. That is, that is not a symbol of um, anxiousness. That is not a symbol of um, trying to, uh, you know, de-escalate um, the situation. That is a relaxed demeanor um, as he killed uh, George Floyd, and it's devastating. It's devastating for folks in Minneapolis to relive through. It's devastating for folks across the country who took action in support of justice for George Floyd. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you, you likely, I know I certainly, uh, along, along with a lot of black people, but generally people of goodwill across the country, are being re-traumatized with this trial going on. It's it's really difficult uh, to watch without uh, getting emotional. But part of it, if you're a black person, if you're a person of color, is just the risk that you feel. Everything that you do in this skin, right? Um, you have to calculate how people are going to take it, what, how law enforcement is going to respond. And it doesn't matter. It could be walking down the street. It could be going into a store. It could be going to visit your doctor. Whatever it is, it's that constant stress, that constant reminder that you are a black person, you are a person of color living in the United States. And that uh, makes you automatically a threat Right. And I, I just wanted you to say a bit about that. And then the insult after watching uh, what myself and, and many consider to be a public lynching, you know, that uh, fomented protests on every continent across the world that, you know, the defense is now trying to blame onlookers, right, who were basically trying to get him to do the right thing. Carissa. Correct, including their own uh, fire, uh, fire department EMT from their own city, who customarily, if she had been on duty, could have potentially been called to that scene to administer medical support, and they were not even listening to to her. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, this this brings up trauma that lives deep in our bodies. 
um, deep, deep in our bones from from both witnessing and and fighting for justice in cases that reside in our own communities um, that, you know, uh, police officers acted in very egregious and harmful ways. You know, this is a microcosm of how black folks' lives are um, treated in, in this country. And as I stated before, you know, it is, it is devastating. Um, and so I think that's why uh, both our, our comrades in Minneapolis as well as black-led organizations across the country are really inviting us into reimagining public safety. If we have to rely on a, a force, a department, an agency that um, customarily um, harms black people uh, and often with no forms of accountability, and when accountability is sought, uh, it is at the hands of other police officers who are also ingrained in this line of thinking, that system is, is, is faltered. That system is faltered. We would not allow a corporation, we would not allow another public agency that has this devastating impact on, on folks, explicitly if they were white people, to persist. But because it's black folks, it is allowed to persist. Yeah, and, you know, I read an article earlier today that said, well, it was an opinion piece, that policing isn't on trial um, in, you know, in this case, and, and that's too bad it's not. But um, having said that, what, as the Movement for Black Lives, you're the national field director for the Movement for Black Lives, uh, what are some of the demands being put forward by this broad uh, movement? The context, of course, being the murder of George Floyd, but there is also the ongoing crisis with policing in Rochester, New York, and indeed uh, Southern California, I mean, across the country. We see again and again and again and again um, the same issues. What are some of the demands being put forward by this movement to address some of this? Yes, yeah, so over, over the summer last year, as, as you're probably aware, many uh, of the organizations that are part of the movement for black lives started to call for defunding of the police. In short, that is divesting resources from harmful institutions and investing those resources into uh, systems and structures um, that, that keep our folks healthy. And so the short of that is really shifting the size, scale, and scope of policing. Do police need to get military-grade weapons from the military to police their own communities? No. Do, does all of all, so many pieces of our life have to be wrapped up in policing. Everything from mental health support to uh, having to name when you're, you, you have something that was stolen. You are required usually to contact the police before you can even file an insurance claim. The way that our world is wrapped around an ineffective system such as policing is, is pretty, pretty challenging for us to all navigate. And so, you know, what we are calling for is a defunding of the police. We are calling for a divestment from a system and investing in those systems. And there are examples of our folks actually meeting the needs that the police 
historically has failed to meet, including in California, uh, out of Sacramento, there's a, a group um, that started a project called MH First where they are rapidly responding to uh, mental health crises uh, without politi- uh, uh, police presence. So we know that we have the sharpness um, and the efficiency in our communities to meet some of the needs that, that our communities have without militarized forces, without out police officers who are armed and dangerous. Right now, there are a lot of people that I have heard from who are outraged by what happened with George Floyd, but they're skeptical about the demand for uh, defunding the police. And people ask questions like, is defunding the police the same thing as abolition? Um, You know, and we know that there are some cities that have been doing some defunding of the police and have not abolished them. And also in uh, Minneapolis itself, um, the Minneapolis City Council members promised to dismantle the city's police department and create a public safety system. That, however, has not yet happened. And and there are a lot of uh, activists on the ground, part of the Black Lives Matter movement, because there's the organization and then there's the movement, who are upset about this. Um, Your thoughts on defunding versus abolition and just to clear that up for some people who are asking about that. Yes, yeah, so the Movement for Black Lives is an abolitionist organization. We do believe that systems that historically and presently cause harm to our people should not exist. We do think that abolition will not happen overnight. And abolition in, in and of itself is not just about the dismantling, but it's about the building of a new. And so... We want to be safe in our communities. We want our people to be safe in our communities. And we want to explore together across the country what are ways that do that that are actually effective. If police kept us safe, if police deterred crime based on the per capita number of police in this country, we would be the safest and most uh, and, and country with the least amount of crime in the world. But what history has shown is that police actually don't play that role. And so we're interested in re-envisioning, reimagining a new process. And for us, that is a path towards abolition, where we build new structures of accountability, new structures of safety that keep us all safe and don't put black folks in, 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 in the crosshairs. Right. So what you're saying, it is it is a process. It's an ongoing process with that goal in mind. Uh, But meanwhile, um, also seemingly disconnected, but I think it's very connected with with all of this in terms of the treatment of black people in the United States. uh, Carissa uh, Lewis is what is happening uh, now with the um, the Georgia's new election uh, law, a, a Jim Crow type law. And you see now Arizona and Texas moving in that same direction, and that there have been hundreds, actually, of these laws, according to the uh, Brennan Center, about 250 bills with restrictive uh, voting um, uh, provisions across the country. And meanwhile, the bill that is in the House, that is in Congress right now, uh, that 
it's a question mark that's really trying to undo the damage that was done to the Voting Rights Act with the Supreme Court uh, 2013 decision gunning a key section of the Voting Rights Act that it looks, it's a little unclear if that legislation would actually uh, get through. You have people like uh, Senator Manchin, who has outsized clout right now in the Senate, saying, well, he's not going to vote for it unless Republicans come on board, interestingly, because it's Republicans that are pushing uh, these voter suppression laws. So I wondered if you uh, wanted to comment on that and connect the dots a bit, because I, I think there is a connection uh, between what happens to somebody like George Floyd and these these attempts, and also the, the idea that even in the March of the January 6th invasion in the U.S. Capitol, that a study is now showing that a lot of uh, the people who participated, participated not because they were feeling economically oppressed, as some people have said, but because they're feeling that as white people, they're under threat as people of color um, make our demands and, um, you know, battle for our rights. Your thoughts on, on all of this? Yes. What, what we're clear about and what the Republicans are also clear about is the electorate is changing. And um, unless they are able to steal, cheat, and lie their way into winning seats, uh, both at the state level and federal level, uh, they, will, they, will be, they will continue to lose. And so they are doing everything in their uh, power, whether it is considered legal or not, to make sure that the changing electorate loses their voice, right? And, and what I'm clear about is we actually don't have true democracy, even based on the, the redistricting, based on all of the um, uh, voter suppression laws that have existed. They are ramping up those laws. But even before this election, um, we know that um, there has been mass voter suppression in our communities um, because folks are scared, right? They're scared of us um, building power. They're scared of us moving in collective and, and vision-led ways. Um, and so, you know, I, we, we have a, a group inside of the Movement for Black Lives called the Electoral Justice Project. They actually, uh, one of our anchor organizations just helped to get to Shara um, elected. It's our, our, our C, some of our C4 work. And, you know, this, we are up to a lot of things. You know, we, we both are invested in defunding the police, but we're also invested in creating conditions where our folks um, have justice in the electoral arena. And so you're right, it, it all is connected. It, all of it is fashioned in a way to silence um, and to limit our power as, as black black folks. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we take the, the language of, of Malcolm X uh, very seriously when he says by any means necessary. That means by all the means. That means electoral strategies. That means protest. That means policy change, like the Breathe Act that we, that we are introducing um, that looks at divesting at the federal level. Uh, and so we're going to continue to do that work because it's necessary for us to live thriving and healthy lives in this country. Yes, and Carissa, um, really important work uh, happening that you all are involved in for people who want to uh, find out more about the Movement for Black Lives and who want to support uh, the various initiatives, of which there are several, that, you, that the Movement for Black Lives is involved in, um, what should they do? 
Uh, yeah, they can go to our website. It's M4BL, the number four, M4BL.org. Uh, they can check us out on all our social media platforms, <clears throat> and they can text DEFEND to 90975. Right. Well, Carissa Lewis, the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives, thank you so very much for joining us, and we certainly hope that you will return to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me.